this is True Crime Exposed, and I'm your host, Kayla Waters. You can join my co-host, Alicia Jenkins, each week as I dive deep into a new case with you guys. We created this show to give our victim stories exposure, to give them a voice, and to stand up for them. And by doing that, we're able to expose the monsters lurking all around us. Hey everyone, as you can tell, I've been super sick. I swear I'm always losing my voice. It's like now that I'm podcasting, when I get sick, my body knows to like attack my throat or something and just make my life super hard. So it was way worse earlier this week and this is actually it at its best, honestly, the best it's going to get this week. So I apologize for being so raspy, but hopefully you can make it through today's episode because it's a very special one to me. I also want to mention that the last name in this case, it, I've always read it as hoops. And so I feel like a lot of other people in the community also think of it as hoops. Um, but I was watching a video, um, on this family's business page and they actually refer to their own last name as hoops. So, That was a change I had to get used to and I just wanted to mention it for everyone that does kind of see this as hoops. I am just going with what I heard the family say, how I heard them say their own last name. And the case I'm talking about today is one that I've received so many requests for since the time that we started the podcast, which is like almost two years ago now. And I've gotten so many for it because it is a local case here out of Idaho Falls. Now, I've also waited on covering it for that same reason, because it is local and Amber has a lot of family that still live in the area. I've just wanted to do right by this coverage. But I also know that they've expressed overwhelming gratitude for the community in Idaho Falls that has shown them support and lifted them up through this event that no family should ever have to endure. Amber's case is an important one to share because while there is somewhat of a conclusion, there are still loose ends and answers to be found. Amber's case hasn't gotten the attention nationally that it deserves from the media. Although locally, she is someone that has made an imprint on everyone's hearts. The Bonneville County Sheriff's Office considers Amber Hope's case as open and active. They are still seeking information and following leads that come into the tip line. With that, are you ready for today's case? In 1968, Kathleen and Norris Bergner purchase a home on Lincoln Road in Idaho Falls. It's perfect for their blooming small business they had just started that same year, Bergner's Classic Auto Body. The home sits on about an acre of land and originally includes a two-car garage slash shop that Norris is able to use for this business. Here in this home, the couple works together, they raise a family together, and they create lifelong memories together. But they'll also endure a nightmare together 
when their granddaughter, Amber Hoops, goes missing from the shop on September 14, 2001. You can find more information about their business history and shop on ClassicCollisionID.com. So Kathleen and Norris were high school sweethearts. They were proud members of the Church of Latter-day Saints. So they get married in the Idaho Falls Temple on July 9th, 1958. And in 1963, the couple is living in Tennessee so that Norris can work for his uncle's construction company. They already had one child before the move. This is a son, David. And then during this time in Tennessee, their second child, Heavenly, is born. Heavenly is Amber's mom. And eventually, the family of four moves back to Idaho Falls, where they have two more daughters. Norris had always loved auto body work. His dad owned an auto shop that Norris was helping sweep from the time he's eight years old, and he just gravitated towards the body work. So it's no shock that he ultimately follows his dreams and opens up this shop. And before purchasing that home on Lincoln Road, where the shop still operates to this day, Norris was working out of a shop that he rented, which was located underneath the old Shamrock Bar that is next to the stockyards in Idaho Falls, just off of Yellowstone Highway. But that home on Lincoln Road was absolutely perfect for the Bergner family. So when it came up for sale, they were like very anxious to purchase it. And they started their auto body business. Well, they continued their auto body business. And this shop adjoins the home. So Kathleen and Norris could work and raise their family all at the same time. Kathleen co-owned the shop with Norris and she worked as a secretary and the setup was perfect for Norris who was a workaholic but also a family man with strong family values. Can you imagine working with your husband? No, but you can. (laughs) I can because I do. Do you love it or hate it? I like it. I'm sure the only reason it works is because I have the nicest husband in the world. That is true. She really does have like a super nice husband, except for when you're mad at him, you're like, he's not that nice as everybody thinks. (laughs) But in general, he's super nice, like such a nice guy. He's just patient. So yes, I can have my little tantrums and then (laughs) he just says, I'm the doctor. So do what I say. He like handles like your personality very well. So it works. Because do you like really get sick of each other or not really? I mean, we do sometimes, but I always hear people say like, how do you guys work together? Yeah, right. Like (laughs) just working with family would be tough. But I'm I'm assuming these guys enjoyed it or they at least make, make it work like you guys because they the whole thing is pretty much just a family affair. Like everybody works here together. As the kids grow older, they're working here. I mean, that's got to be nice for them to have their shop near their house, right by there so they can see what's going on with the kids and stuff. Yeah, especially with him described as like a workaholic because then he's still pretty much able to see his kids be raised and grow up while he's working. And then the kids can also learn this like strong workmanship yeah, by working alongside him. So I'm sure it was pretty fun to grow up there in the shop. So 
like I said, as the kids grow older, they start to work side by side their parents. The couple's oldest child and only son, David, was big time buddies with his dad. He adored following him around the shop and learning the trade. So it was natural that he ends up managing the shop with the ultimate plan to buy the business when his parents are ready to retire. However, tragedy strikes in June of 1993 when David is in a motorcycle accident. He was riding his V65 motorcycle down John Adams Street when he is killed. And this left his family completely devastated. Not only were his parents and siblings left to grieve, he was also married with two sons and a daughter. So David's death was like a tremendous loss to the whole family. Oh, that's sad. It really is. Like, no family should have to experience the pain of losing a loved one. Like, I I honestly wish death was just not a real thing. I know. But what's completely unfair is for a family to experience multiple tragedies. Like, I think sometimes when you go through a tragedy, you would feel like, okay, I've been through this. I should not have to go through any more in my life. Or when I see someone go through a tragedy, I'm like, the rest of their life should be perfect because like no one should have to experience that. But these tragedies that this family goes through, they end up being some that very few people have experienced or understand. So did David and his family live at their own home? I think they lived at their own home, but he did manage the shop. So he's there a lot. I'm sure even his kids were there a lot. Because their grandparents' house adjoins the shop. Okay. Yeah, just like a really tight family. And Kathleen and Norris had to experience this type of loss not only with their own child, but then again with their grandchild, watching their daughter also lose her child. Which would just be really hard to lose your own, and then you're watching your own kid go through it. Like, I think it's the worst loss you can experience. Like, the loss of your child. So, the missing child is not David's daughter no no this is just like a tragedy that happened in the family before Amber goes missing okay his sister Heavenly is Amber's mom so Heavenly lost her brother and then later Amber disappears So her mom, Heavenly, really never planned to work in or run the shop. But about a year after the loss of her brother, Kathleen and Norris ask her husband, Brent Hoops, if he wants to take over the manager position with a plan for him to ultimately take over the shop. And Brent is Amber's dad. He agrees to work for Kathleen and Norris. So like I said earlier, this shop is just like a family affair. And while researching this case, I came across some pretty rude comments on like Reddit threads, of course, because people on the internet are annoying, but they were conversing about the case and some people were just saying things about how Amber probably left on her own because she's an adult living with her grandparents. She must not have had a good childhood. Like they were almost assuming that Amber's grandparents must have had custody of her through their life through her life and that this is why she was living there but that's just like not the truth so I wanted to make that clear that like yes she's living at her grandparents house but she's 20 years old when she goes missing so I'm assuming she's just there working and like living there close to work her parents are there every day like her dad is managing the shop at this point like it's not like Amber's estranged to her parents 
Yeah, you lived with grandma before. Yeah. When you were like Yeah, I was 17 actually. You, I, we always had custody of you. Yes, 17 because I graduated at 17. And then you moved after I graduated and I lived here with grandma until I was 18. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. Like it was just some ignorant assumptions and people were like, she clearly was troubled. She probably left on her own. And it's like, no, she wasn't troubled. Like the whole, the whole family worked here. This is why she's at her grandparents. So I just wanted to clear that up and, you know, make it clear that Amber was close with not only her grandparents, but also her parents. So Amber is Heavenly and Brent's oldest child. She was born on December 27th, 1980. And from what I can tell, it seems that they have two other children, a son named Brewster and a daughter named Jade. In fact, this brother and sister duo now co-own the auto body shop together. So they are the third generation to take over, over the shop and the legacy that their grandparents Kathleen and Norris left behind. Norris did pass away on January 1st, 2017 at 75 years old, just eight months after his wife Kathleen passed at 75 years old on May 17th, 2016. So the shop today is known as Classic Auto Collision Center. Jade and Brewster's parents, Heavenly and Brent, had purchased the shop in 2009 when Norris retires. Kathleen had already retired from her secretary job years earlier, far before Norris did in 2009. And she retired in 1994 after her son's death. So she's not working there as the secretary when Amber disappears. Heavenly actually had taken her place as secretary. So again, Amber's entire family is working there. Not only is her dad managing the shop, her mom is there every day as the secretary. Eventually, Heavenly will co-own it alongside her husband before passing it on to Amber's two siblings. So this family is incredible. They've persevered through their darkest times, and they're a big part of the Idaho Falls community. On their website, which I referenced earlier, it reads, quote, Words are not sufficient to describe the love and gratitude we feel in our hearts for the goodness of the people in Idaho Falls and the surrounding area who came to our rescue and never left us alone in our time of suffering, of grief, and sorrow. Everyone was so patient with Amber's family as they were going through unspeakable grief, all while trying to continue to run a business and search for their daughter. It is with much deep sorrow that we were never able to bring her home and have our answers as to why, but we are still here and we are happy again and in a better place. Time does heal, but we would never have made it and be where we are today without all of you. We love you. Thank you for helping bear our burdens. They were really grateful to the community because obviously, like they said, losing a child and still running a business would be incredibly hard. Clearly, Amber was raised in this loving family that was super close. They all worked together, and Amber adored being being surrounded by her family. Like I said, she was the oldest child, and she was super close with her younger sister, Jade. They had this inseparable bond. Amber was like a dream big sister to have. She's described by her family as shy and a little socially withdrawn, so she kept her friend group as a tight circle, which honestly is probably best. Like, the goal should be to not have the largest amount of friends, but to actually find a few true blue friends. 
And so by keeping her circle tight, Amber had this time to bond with her family through her teenage years and into adulthood. Aside from working for the auto body shop, she had also worked as a nanny to two little kids. And a little bit about Amber is she loved attending weekly church meetings and she was very talented musically. She had a beautiful singing voice and she played the piano. Amber was even a part of a singing group called the Sunshine Singers. And she loved things like creative writing and cooking in her free time. In fact, it's said that she even considered culinary school in her future. But that future she so deserved was stolen from her. On September 14th, 2001, Amber and her grandparents are getting ready for bed. Amber had hopped into a white t-shirt and gray and white boxer shorts. Then she wrapped herself up with a knee-length gray terry cloth robe. Kathleen and Norris head to bed about 10.30 p.m. Amber had already headed back out to the shop to work on the computer as well as email some of her friends. It's reported by the Charlie Project that her and her little sister had been talking on the phone around 10 p.m. Now, a few hours pass by, and at 1 a.m., Kathleen wakes up. Her eyes might have been sleepy, but she notices something that jolts her brain into consciousness immediately. Amber's TV and lights in her bedroom are still on, and that's not common for Amber to be up this late, so Kathleen goes to see what's up. But she feels a little knot in her stomach when Amber is not in her room. Kathleen does a quick check around the home, wondering where Amber could be. But a nervous feeling consumes her when she checks the back door to find that it is unlocked. This nudges her to wake up Norris. Now both grandparents are up, walking around the house and the shop, looking for Amber. Another thing that left Kathleen and Norris with an icky feeling in their gut was that the computer monitor is still turned on in the shop, as if Amber had walked away, vanishing in the middle of using it. But there's one thing that tells Kathleen and Norris it is time to make that dreaded call to 911. One of their shop trucks used for their business is missing from the parking lot. Amber would have never snuck off with the truck without informing her grandparents. It was super out of character. I guess there's like what they called a bag phone in the truck. Do you know what that is? No. Hmm. I don't either. (laughs) I'm assuming just like some sort of phone, home phone type thing, but for a truck? I don't know. But Kathleen and Norris are able to call it and there is no answer. So they make the 911 call. And in the middle of the night, Bonneville County Sheriff's deputies are dispatched out to Classic Auto Body where there is a report of a missing woman. The second they arrive, they are met with a worried family. They lay their concerns out for law enforcement telling them how unusual this is. Now, of course, police do have to consider the possibility that Amber may have just ran off on her own because like the truck is missing. So they obviously think, well, did Amber take the truck? But the family stays adamant in their statements that this could not be the case. In fact, the family even has a suspect in mind right away. There was a man who had recently threatened Norris. It was a disgruntled employee. His name is Keith Hescock, and he had been a friend of a family relative who then worked for the shop. He worked as a painter before quitting about two years before Amber's disappearance. And there isn't much information about what went down between Norris and Keith. 
Heavenly did tell reporters that her dad and Keith were just always butting heads. And Norris tells officer that this Keith guy had a vendetta against him and that he threatened Norris just right before Amber's disappearance. So regardless of him quitting two years ago, he's like still making these threats up until recently. Police take this into consideration through their investigation, but Keith provides police with an alibi and the detectives move on. On the night Amber goes missing, police quickly start searching for where she could be. As they search the shop for clues, they notice that all of her personal belongings were left behind, including her most recent paycheck. So, this kind of dilutes the idea that she ran away on her own. The Bonneville County Sheriff's Department reports that the evidence gathered leads them to believe that foul play is involved. The search for Amber and that missing truck is now extending outside of the property on Lincoln Road. Soon, the red and white pickup truck is located just about two miles away. It was abandoned in another parking lot with the keys in the ignition still. And this discovery adds insult to injury because there were no signs of Amber. If she wasn't with the truck, then where was she? It's reported that Amber has brown hair and brown eyes. She was wearing the pajamas I described earlier, and she wore a small diamond stud earring in her upper left ear. She was about 5 foot 5 and 140 pounds at the time of her disappearance. She had also been diagnosed with vitiligo. Is that how you say it? I'm sure you say it better than me. Vitiligo. Vitiligo. Okay. Do you know what that is? Yeah, it's like, I looked it up, a skin mm-hmm. condition. Like Michael Jackson had, where pigments yeah where it causes like white spots yeah okay so amber has some of these spots on her upper left arm and then on her left leg from her ankle all the way up to her thigh and this is the description put out of the woman everyone is now searching for amber chanel hoops members of the community come out in swarms to help search for amber over the next few days They're searching areas of Lincoln Road and up into the nearby foothills, but there's nothing. And while ground searches are being conducted, police are also focusing on their own investigation behind the scenes. They're following leads from tips that are called in, but everything seems to lead to a dead end. Through the multitude of interviews conducted with family, friends, and anyone who knew Amber, police did come up with multiple people they thought were potential suspects. But one by one, the trail goes cold. To this day, Amber has never been found. It's been more than two decades, and police still consider the case to be open and active. They are still taking tips and hoping to gather the final pieces of this puzzle to come to a definite conclusion. But that doesn't mean that there are zero answers in this case, because police do have a serious suspect who they believe abducted and murdered Amber. Following Amber's disappearance, another young girl goes missing on June 2nd, 2002. This is only about six and a half months later. A 911 call comes into dispatch and the Bonneville County Sheriff's deputies are dispatched to a home on Highway 26 in the Milo area. And this is like just north of Idaho Falls. The call relays that there is a 14-year-old girl in need of help. She apparently had been abducted from her backyard. It turns out police were already searching for a missing girl. 
Her family had reporting her missing that morning at 10.30 a.m. The night before, this girl and her sister decide to have a sleepover out back on the trampoline, which is like crazy scary to me because we did this all the time. Mm-hmm. You did. Like having a sleepover on the trampoline where you like take your sleeping bags out, your pillows, you like gather with your friends, or I did it a lot with Jade, my aunt. Like you go on the tramp, you fall asleep. It's super uncomfortable. It's like a terrible night's sleep because you all end up in the middle of the trampoline, like <laughs> sunk into the middle. I never felt in danger. You obviously didn't feel like any danger with that when you're in your own backyard. So this trampoline slumber party obviously does not end up being fun. In the middle of the night, a man comes to the tramp. The two sisters are sleeping. He grabs one, forces her into his vehicle, and then he drives her to his home just north of Idaho Falls. And I guess a family member did discover that this girl is missing around 5.30 a.m., but they're wondering if she, like, went off with a friend because her sister is still asleep on the trampoline and unharmed. So, like, initially, they're just not alarmed. She's 14 years old. Maybe a friend picked her up. Maybe she, like, snuck off. How old was the sister? I'm not sure how old the sister was. Like, there's very little reported on it because... She survived and she was like a minor, you know. That makes me think of the Elizabeth Smart case. Because remember that her kidnapper like snuck inside her room that she was sharing with her sister. Yes, exactly. Which, side note, the police actually initially believed that this case could have been connected to the kidnapping of Elizabeth Smart. Mm. So that's funny that that's what it made you think of, too. Well, yeah, because, I mean, they just, like, looked at the dad. I mean, they look at the family members, right? But it's like, I'm pretty sure the sister kind of sat there for a little bit scared. Yes. To move or anything, which is justified. Yeah, and I don't think she informed her family or anything until the morning. Yeah, and nobody... Nobody thinks like that someone's just going to sneak in your bedroom that you share with somebody and take you like it's just kind of an unbelievable scenario. Mm -hmm. And then people like when someone doesn't report something right away, like it's like I'm sure people at that point were like, why didn't the sister go right to her parents? But it's like she was probably scared, which actually in this case, one place reported that the sister was asleep when she was taken but on the Bonneville County Sheriff's Office website which is probably more accurate they do report that the siblings so I don't know if there was more than one just the sister out there but they report that the other siblings that were out there were threatened by this guy when he takes the 14 year old off the tramp so like do they just get scared enough that they're like I'm not moving oh until the morning I'm sure like you're frozen in your fear uh-huh like I'm waiting till my parents especially for a kid oh yeah yeah and like with the with them connecting it to Elizabeth Smart actually I am not quite sure why that's like even mentioned it's literally mentioned on their website and that they like initially thought there might be a connection but the weird thing with that is that Elizabeth Smart is actually abducted three days later on June 5th from her house down in Salt Lake City Utah 
which like, sure, I could see a connection. However, they they catch this guy in the Idaho Falls kidnapping the same day. Oh, huh. And like at the end of this, you'll probably also wonder, like, how did they think that could connect to Elizabeth Smart, who was kidnapped three days later? I don't know. <laughs> but I don't I was like, did they get the dates wrong on like saying that this girl was kidnapped June 2nd? little disconnect for me there but they mentioned that they initially thought there were maybe ties to Elizabeth Smart's case and that was not the case so going back to like a family member checking at 5 30 a.m and being like where is she so they you know they first just start with calling friends and other people who knew her to see if she did like go off anywhere and at one point, the family even calls a local farmer and they ask him to help search for her by air with his helicopter. And I'm not sure if that happens before or after the 911 call, but the call to dispatch does come in at 10.30 a.m. From there, detectives start their search immediately. They're bringing in search dogs and rescue teams to check the local canals and the local fields, but they're not finding anything until later that day when they get a call that a missing girl has been found. So the man who kidnaps this young girl in Idaho Falls takes her to his home. He assaults her. I'm sure she's absolutely petrified. And when the morning comes, he chains her up in a bedroom and then he just heads out to work. It's reported on a documentary I watched for another case that she was able to grab a fire extinguisher that she smashed the handcuffs with until she's free. And then she runs. She escapes this home and according to the Bonneville County Sheriff's Office website, she is somehow able to make contact with an employee at her father's business that notifies her dad she is free and she needs help. This is when police are called and deputies are now heading out to rescue her. It turns out that the man who abducted her was Keith Glenn Hescock. Does that sound familiar? Or can you remember? Because this... I'm like, it does. <laughs> so this is the same man that Amber's family believed was responsible for her abduction. The disgruntled employee. Oh, no way. So the one who police checked out but had an alibi. Oh. Now... He has abducted this other girl and all of a sudden he's back on the radar for Amber's disappearance. Oh, Crazy. It had to have been him. I absolutely think it was him. While Keith is working his job as a tool salesman, police start collecting evidence inside of his home. Like remember, he went off to work while he left this girl at his house. Now the police are anxiously awaiting his arrival. Bonneville County Prosecutor Dave Watkins Jr. had obtained the search warrant for the home and ultimately at some point, I don't know if it's the same day or later on in the investigation, a forensics team from Pocatello with the state crime lab also come to the home. But when Keith gets off of work and comes pulling into his driveway, he's caught off guard to see that police are at his home. He knows he's in some deep trouble because at the very least, he just kidnapped a young girl. So he backs out and he flees the scene. Police follow him. Ultimately, about 10 officers are in pursuit of him. 
The chase goes east of Idaho Falls and through the Heisey and Kelly Canyon area. Keith is driving like an absolute maniac. Campers in this area are stunned to be witnessing a literal high-speed chase. And the speeds are reaching up to 80, which might not sound super high, but these are back road mountain roads. Like they're winding roads. Some of them are dirt. You've been up there. Yeah, it's high. You're not going 80. You're not on the freeway or the highway. (laughs) No. Going 80. You're going on a small little single road. I would never go 80 up through high sea area. Not Mm -mm. like the type of road you're going to be going these speeds on. So campers are like, what is going on? I mean, they see this car barreling through and then 10 officers coming after him. That would be just wild to witness. So Keith ultimately makes it to the hills of the Grand Teton National Forest. And it's here that he comes to a dead end where he tries tries to drive over a berm. But this just high centers his truck and police are coming up on him fast. So Keith jumps out of the truck and he starts running on foot. He's also carrying a firearm and he quickly turns it on officers. Now there's a shootout. Sergeant Todd Raymond is shot in the leg and there's a video of him limping away. He was lifelighted via helicopter to the Eastern Idaho Regional Medical Center and he did survive. But Ricky did not survive. This was a canine police dog who had been with the sheriff's office for a year. And he died protecting his handler, Jim Scheifler. So this dog was shot by Keith. Captain Paul Wilde said that this may have been the first police dog killed in action in Bonneville County. Quote, this dog gave his life to save an officer. This dog is deployed to take his weapon away. The idea is his life will come before the deputies. So throughout all of the shooting, police are obviously shooting back at Keith. Now he also gets hit in the leg and he falls to the ground. While he's laying there on the ground, he decides to turn his gun on himself and take his own life. Oh, I hate when they do that. I know. I told you that. Yeah. It's so not a conclusion to a case. Yeah. Like you want them to face justice. You want as many answers as you can get. So, you know, unfortunately with his death, these answers don't come in this case or in Amber's case. Now, we know Keith Hescock was already a person of interest at some point in Amber Hoop's disappearance. While he had these family and work connections to Classic Auto Body Shop and he had made those threats to Norris, police find he had an alibi. Well, Heavenly tells reporters that it came to light that Keith's family was actually lying for him to provide an alibi. Yeah. Which like what? I'm sure. How do you get your family to like lie for you though? Like if I came to you and I was like, hey, the police are going to be contacting you about like this missing person. Um, I had nothing to do with it, but like, will you? you know, I don't have an alibi. Will you say I was with you? <laughs> I feel like you'd be like, no, that's because I would. <laughs> I know you would actually. I don't feel that you would be like, <laughs> figure it out yourself. Why are you lying? And then you'd probably do your own investigation and find out that it was me. Then I'd probably just call the cops and be like, hey, <laughs> hey, my daughter just called me asking for an my alibi. My daughter called to ask. <laughs> I'm not really sure what's going on. Like, 
You would never do that. No. Would you? No, I wouldn't. I mean, of course, these situations, I'm sure, are so hard because these are like people that like you love. So like maybe you trust them. But I think even if I trusted the person and they asked me for an alibi, I would be like, "Mm, I just like really don't want to get in trouble. So it's a no. But like, I don't think I think some, you know, I think some parents would do it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, obviously. Yeah. Or wives. Totally. Not me. Don't call me because I will not help. (laughs) I'll turn you in. Don't call me. (laughs) Yeah. No, thank you. We don't want involved. Yeah. So I just thought that was wild. Like, I feel like that's a pretty easy thing to say no to. I know. So. Amber's family, regardless of his alibi, they had always remained firm in their belief that Keith had a possible connection to Amber's disappearance because it was so unlike her to just leave. And it seemed like whoever came into the shop to take her would have had to have an understanding about the shop, where the truck was parked, where the keys were, where the garage door opener was, things like that. So, They don't believe, and I don't think police believe that Amber, you know, and there could be multiple things that happened. Maybe Keith did lure Amber out and she took the truck. But I think ultimately the belief is that Amber is kidnapped from the shop. Oh, yeah. They think Keith came to the shop. He came inside the shop. She's in the shop. He kidnaps her, whether at gunpoint or threatens her. And she gets in the truck, whether he's driving, whether she ma- he makes her drive. They don't think Amber like went out to meet someone or meet him and then it's taken. Yeah. It's likely that Keith could have parked in the parking lot where the auto body truck is abandoned and then made his, you know, walked over to the shop because it's just two miles away. So he could himself have parked there, made his way to the shop kidnapped Amber and then that's why they go back to that parking lot and get into his truck there yeah so I think that's the general idea of okay what happened yeah police say that they investigate Keith as a serious suspect in the months following the June kidnapping and they do find a quote great deal of info that connected him to Amber's disappearance And on top of that, as the years have gone on and technology has gotten better, police say pieces of this case have been more solidified. They will not close the case, though, until Amber is located. But the Bonneville County Sheriff's detectives do believe that, quote, Keith abducted Amber and buried her body in an unknown location. Did they, um, did he live in his own house? Like, was that just his house? Did he have a family? Did he live with his parents? From what I can tell, it was his own house. Okay. And he was just there alone. Okay. And he is about 42 years old. Oh, he's He's 42 42 years old when the June kidnapping happened. So he's old. He's older, yes. I wonder if he'd ever been married. I know. I'm going to have to do a little more digging on him. Mm Mm-hmm which you'll see. He'll come back up. But the Bonneville County Sheriff's Office writes on their website, if you have any information about this case or any criminal activity, please contact local law 208-529-1200 
or you can call Crime Stoppers by calling 208-522-1983. You can also report a tip online at www.ifcrime.org or through the P3 Tips on your mobile device. It's an app that is available in the Apple or Google Play Store. Amber's family holds a memorial service for her on the one-year anniversary of her disappearance. And while they longed to locate her, Heavenly said that Keith's death did provide the family with some closure. Now, remember a while back when we covered another local case, the case of Stephanie Eldridge? She went missing, and for decades, this case was cold, but it turned out her fiancé's brother, who lived in the same home as them, murdered her. Yeah. When we were talking in our coverage about Stephanie's body being recovered in the foothills here in Idaho Falls, Mm -hmm. I mentioned Amber in our coverage of that because when the remains were found, both Stephanie and Amber's families were waiting to hear if it could be their loved one. So it seems like these families have kind of gotten close because in 2009, both Stephanie and Amber's family hold a barbecue together. They wanted to thank the community for their support and for keeping Stephanie and Amber's names in the public eye. And in 2009, this is before Stephanie's case was closed, before her body was even found. So at this barbecue, they presented pictures of the two girls in, you know, memory of them. And they also provided information for the public about other Idaho missing persons cases. And they did things like provide resources for families that have to deal with the heartbreaking tragedy of a disappearance. Audra Bergner, Amber's aunt, said, quote, Today is our way of remembering those people and absolutely keeping Amber Hoop's name and Stephanie Eldridge's name out there in the public. They are still missing and someone knows someone has answers. So even though her family also believes Keith did this, they still want more answers. I mean, at the very least, they want to know where Amber is. They want to locate her. On September 14th, 2006, this is five years um, after Amber's disappearance, the five-year anniversary of her disappearance, the governor of Idaho at that time recognizes September 14th as Missing Persons Day. So September 14th here in Idaho is Missing Persons Day in memory of Amber. So there is more. Amber is not the only missing girl that Keith Hescock is connected to. He is also connected to a nine-year-old girl that went missing from Chalice, Idaho. Her name is Stephanie Crane, but we will be diving into her case next week. So yeah, Keith likely wreaked more havoc here in Idaho. And the devastating thing is, if he had been connected to Stephanie Crane's case that I'm telling you about next week, and he had been arrested, Amber Hoops would have never disappeared. Amber deserved far more than the 20 years of life she had. She was a person that would have made a difference in this world. A person with a lot of love to share with the rest of the world. Life experiences like getting married, having children, or having a career, or purchasing a home were all taken from her. And those memories were also taken from her family, who never got to watch her experience those things. 
a daughter was taken, a granddaughter, an older sister that these two siblings really looked up to. My biggest hope is that Amber is able to be located one day so that her family can lay her to rest. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Kayla Waters. Our co-host is Alicia Jenkins. Our power cleanser is Charlie Waters. And all the music was created by Jamie Schwartz. You can find me on Instagram at LilyJamesMusic. Make sure you also put us follow on social media. Please share this episode with your friends and your family, especially if you're in Idaho. Because police are still looking for tips and information in this case that may help them locate Amber. She deserves to be found and her family deserves more closure. I know you guys really care about these cases and I appreciate all that you do to help spread the word. Hi, I'm Charlie Waters, and today we are going to be doing a palate cleanser about baby toddlers, just like my little sister. Did you know toddlers have, have lots of energy, just like my baby sister? Here she is to say hi right now. This how I said the Say willow. This how I do this. Scientists have confirmed that babies expend 50% more energy in one day than adults do. These tiny tots use up more energy than pregnant women and teenage boys. And that's why babies can be so crazy. Bye! See you for our next episode. Bye, JJ! So at their barbecue, I love that Stephanie and Amber's family were providing resources for, you know, missing people who have had someone go missing in their lives. Uh, we obviously love doing that We, as we provide um, an organization that you can get involved with at the end of every episode. So in connection with that, I wanted to highlight wehelpthemissing.org. They are a nonprofit that are giving help and hope to the loved ones of the missing. They say that every missing person is someone's child. And that is so true and really hits you. All these missing people, they're someone's family member, someone's loved one, and definitely someone's child. They're compromised of a team of private investigators and citizens who dedicate themselves to investigating, locating, advocating, and raising awareness of missing persons. You can call their anonymous tip line at 1-866-660-4025 or at 435-671-8100. You can also visit their website at wehelpthemissing.org.